Many, many years ago, I had a job where I delivered pizzas, and I would ride around all night just searching for something on the radio. I loved talk radio back before it got angry. So when I read this review on iTunes, it stuck with me. I figured I'd share it with you guys. This is from someone who calls themselves Have Love. I found your show while I was looking for Ray Wiley Hubbard interviews, and I've been hooked ever since. If this aspiring musician ever makes it, it will not least be due to the lessons I learned listening to your show while driving pizzas around this nowhere town. I dread the day when I run out of old shows and I'll be forced to wait a week for new stuff rather than listening to three episodes in a row every morning. Thank you kindly, have love, and uh, be sure to stay safe out there on the roads. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in a hotel room in Beaver, Pennsylvania, and the jokes just write themselves. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show is founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Chip Taylor. Chip is a singer, songwriter, he's led an amazing life, and he's written some iconic songs, not the least of which is Wild Thing. But you can find out everything you need to know about Chip at trainwreckrecords.com. I caught up with Chip at the Loveless Cafe here in Nashville, Tennessee, and he had a really tight schedule. But he wanted to be on the show, so I went ahead and drove out there, and we had a hard place finding anywhere to get together to do this. So uh, if I apologize if you hear a band sound checking in the background. I hope it's not too distracting, but uh, Chip was really generous and gracious with his time, and I think we had a really nice chat. Here's Chip Taylor. I, had, I was a, actually a country and western writer. Uh, from the, in the beginning, I, I was from Yonkers, New York. There was no country music at the time around there, but I, I, my dad and mom let me listen to the radio all the time, even after bedtime, if I something on I, I wanted to hear. And I heard Wheeling, West Virginia, late at night one night, and it changed my life. So I became a, a total country and western uh, fanatic. And I, I love the race records in down south as well, but I, uh, country music was my kind of music, and I had a little country band in high school, and so I actually got into business writing country songs. And my first uh, successes, Willie Nelson heard one of my songs and recorded it. Wasn't a big hit, but it, it was called He Sits at My Table. And, and that helped me, you know, kind of get in there. And then Chet Atkins started recording. He was producing for RCA Victor at the time. And I remember the, the, the note that he sent to the publisher, a little publisher. I used to get $30 a uh, a song in advance against my royalties and and uh, I was so happy whenever a publisher would want one of my songs and this one publisher took one he was a small publisher and a nice guy and he sent it down to Chet and uh, he got a note back from Chet and he called me into his office he said Chip I want you to hear this note I just got back from Chet he said I'm cutting that song you just sent me 
He said, uh, I have no idea who Chip Taylor is. It's very hard for me to believe he's from New York. But wherever he's, <laughs> wherever he's from, I want to hear every song he writes. And that was the start of it. He recorded a song with the Brown family and then... Uh, That's another, a huge compliment from Chet Atkins. Yeah, yeah. So, but the big deal was because he truly did start cutting everything we sent down. And, and that got me a staff job. This is all going to lead to Wild Thing, but it got me a staff job at April Blackwood Music Publishing, which was CBS's first publishing company. It just started. And w with my success that I was getting in country music, they, they signed me and gave me, instead of writing for a bunch of different publishers and getting $30 a song, they paid me a salary. And I just sat there in an office and did. They, I didn't have to. I could write whatever I wanted to. I didn't have to write a whole bunch of songs. I think the contract contract called for a minimum of ten songs a year or something like that. You know, so I could write ten in a week. That didn't, it was a kind of a joke. But but I was sitting there one day and I was just starting to write some rock and roll things. And a and a, a producer writer, uh, kind of a known guy. I didn't know him, but I I mean I knew his name. He, he called me on the phone over at the publishing company. He said, Chip, he said, uh, I hear you're writing some good rock and roll things, some interesting things. And I hadn't had any success yet, but somebody had told him that. He said, uh, I have a group I'm recording uh, day after tomorrow, and, I, and I, I'm not really happy with the songs we have picked for them. I'd like something fresh. Do you have anything to send me over? And I was so, his name was Jerry Granahan. And I was so excited that he, that, Somebody asked me, I, I said, no, let me try to write you something new. I got off the phone, I wrote the start of Wild Thing in just a few minutes, and then I couldn't get it to go anyplace. I just had the course, and I knew I was going to stop and say something. And I, did, I had a session that afternoon at 5 o'clock. This was around 2. I had a session around 5 o'clock to do a country song. So I decided that I knew this country song backwards and forwards, and this was this new little thing I was doing. This, this this other th song, which turned out to be Wild Thing, and I decided I'd go into the studio and, and just see if it could finish itself as I played it, you know, like a blues guy would do it, because it felt like that kind of song. And so I sang the chorus and then, you know, did that stop and and just said whatever came to my mind. I just started thinking about the girl I was singing to and, and said it and didn't know what I was saying. So half the great things about Wild Thing was the space in it and the, the thinking rather than the talking. So. Uh, so silence is. If you ever want to hear a, a uh, silence is part of a part of a song and, and meanings something very valuable. Just listen to that one. Yeah. yeah well, I, okay. Actually, uh, most people know that period of time is the Brill Building era, and uh, the Brill Building was a significant uh, part of it. The actual building because it housed. Many of the songwriters of the day uh, there, Lieber and Stoller, amongst others. Uh, but one of the coolest buildings was right around the corner, up two blocks and, and around the bend at uh, 51st Street between uh, Broadway and, uh, and 7th Avenue and 1650 Broadway. It wasn't as flashy a building. It was kind of a big old square building. It had 12 floors, as I remember. But it had housed a bunch of wonderful, wonderful songwriters. Uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, whoa, what am I, what am I thinking of all the uh, Nevins and Kirshner things and, and, uh, oh, Neil Sedaka and, and, uh, Neil Diamond 
and oh, uh, Jerry Goffin and Carol King, my favorite, started there, and 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 they had just every floor was filled with with music publishers and and songwriters going in and out of the building, and uh, I, I think it was the it had a little bit more soul than the other building. The other building was more of a uh, the next step. Uh, from from the show business stuff when show business music's show tunes started to publishers started to turn to rock and roll they, the more sophisticated ones were in the Brill Building the less sophisticated and the kind of salt of the earth were in 1650 that's where I hung my hat and proudly <laughs> well the only thing I can tell you about Carol King is, is that she started in 1650 Broadway, but about the time I was coming to 1650 Broadway, they were just moving to another building, the Big Rock, and it were, so there was one other building that housed some publishing, but not a lot, and that was the Screen Gems building down a block, but we both recorded a lot of the demos in the same studio, Dick Charles Recording Studios, and I was very shy, and I was crazy about her music, just nuts about her, and I was nuts about her. And every time I would see her, I would just get a chill when I would be with her. And I, I wasn't, she'd say, hi, Chip, So we didn't really know each other well. She, she, like a lot of people, came from that Brooklyn School of Academy of Music. You know, they were very schooled people. And I was just this country kid from Yonkers who didn't know how to read or write a note of music, you know. And I didn't feel like I fit in with those guys, but I appreciated her. She was my favorite. Jerry Goffin and Carol King song. If I knew one of those to come along, would be so special. Every time I say, "Okay, what do they got now?" I look for that. You know. You know, I spent a little time with him, and it was probably right around 1965. And the reason I it was when he was Jimmy James and the and and the and the Flames going in 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 New York. And, and I didn't know who he was. I, I was introduced to him. I saw him around the area for a couple of days, looking out my window. I saw him. It was a guy I didn't know before. And he was with a couple of people in the music business. And one day I walked outside, and he was there. And to tell you the truth, I, I, he was very different looking because his hair was a little crazy and everything. And I, 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 I didn't look like he fit with the clean look of most New York writers, you know. So I was walking down the street, and one of a couple of writers said, hey, Chip, I'd like you to meet a new guy in town. He's, he's a songwriter. His name is Jimmy James. And, uh, and he was very sweet and very nice. And what I heard was is he had signed a contract with Juggy Murray up in 1650 Broadway upstairs. And as it turned out, as I, I didn't, only saw him, I think, twice. And then as it turned out, I think... Well, from what I hear, he was signed as an artist and a songwriter and told Juggy he wanted to write his own songs, but then got embarrassed because he didn't have any songs he thought were any good. And so he ended up going down the village and playing and, and with this band. And then he got discovered and went to England. And right around that time, Wild Thing was becoming, just after that, maybe a year later, Wild Thing becomes number one and Jimmy's ends up going over to England right after it became number one. And it's number one in England, number two in England, number one in the States. And uh, he goes over to England and all of a sudden becomes a star and changes his name back to Hendrix, which his last name was Hendrix in the beginning. So he changed it to Jimmy James. And then, uh, and there you know, all of a sudden he started singing Wild Thing at the end of every one of his songs. So I, I didn't meet him after that. But. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I love Waylon. Uh, he and I got along so good, and and uh, I saw him on a few occasions with my wife Joan and 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 uh, Joan, who I was divorced from after a while, and we got remarried recently. And uh, I remember remember how much great we all got along. And Jesse loved my wife's eyes, and Jeff used to, and and Waylon used to. We just loved to hang out together you know I didn't not not like I'd come down and see him down south or something like that but whenever he came to New York he we'd get it get together and and whenever he was out with the uh with the boys and the um with Chris and and and, and Willie I you know I'd he'd, he'd give me a call and I'd come over and see him and stuff so just a good buddy and and just uh just one of the greatest voices ever you know there's certain voices that you strike you and time goes on there are these honest characters that they're so distinctive like Roy Orbison well Waylon's one of those same kind of guys who nobody sounds like Waylon you know and you, you listen into him sing that Alan Reynolds song dreaming my dreams of you and I'm so happy he cut sweet dream woman I love love that he had one of my songs as a hit but one of my favorite all-time things is dreaming my dreams of you by Waylon Gave up music from 1981, 82 to 1995, 96, and then I I was a professional gambler, and and uh, I I had kind of tired of the music business because of all the politics in it when I was recording, and just kind of out of frustration, just decided to do the other thing that I always did well, and that was gamble. So I did that for a bunch of years, and then I decided my mom got ill. And I started to sing for her, and all of a sudden the urge came back to start making music again. And I knew I'd have to give up gambling totally if I was ever going to really, because back when I was writing the hits, I could write the hit songs. And I had to peer and sing and stuff like that. I could write the hit songs and make bets. But if I was going to come back into the music business in 1996, I had to make a decision to give up gambling because I was going to have to come back as a singer-songwriter you know, and do this thing again. And that's what I wanted to do, and I gave up gambling. And the year I came back, I put an album out called The Living Room Tapes. And I was playing at the bottom line in New York, and a couple of uh, young women came out to come to see my show, and they were so excited to see me back. And they said, you know who, we just were with Willie. We were, we're, we're in his fan club, or we were friends of his. And Willie said he'd love to see you. And I said, really? He said, yeah, he's so happy you're back. And uh, I said, geez, that's nice. And he said, well, he's playing next Friday in Long Island. You want to meet us out there and we'll take it. So I went out to Long Island and I met the, the ladies and uh, I got into the show and, and, uh, and, there, and, and, I, and I saw my old friend Waylon. I hadn't seen him in years. And then the, the girl said, well, Willie, Willie's out signing autographs. And I, he said, he wants you to come out. And I walked out, and there was, he was signing autographs for like 400 people. And he had recorded this. This is 1997. He recorded my song in like 1960, 1959. And, and he's signing the autographs, and I'm standing shyly far away, and he sees me, and he says, Chip, Chip. And he stops what he's doing, and he walks over to me. He says, I'm so glad you're back. I said, Jesus, really, that's so, so sweet. He said, he said, you know, I still think of that song you wrote for me. 
And he started singing. He sits at my table right there. He says, I love that song. He goes, he sits at my table, drinks of my wine. You'd never know he was a can of mine. And he sang the whole first I said, get back to your, get back to your fans. <laughs> That's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> Okay, I can't let you just gloss over the gambling thing. Mm -hmm. Is it true that um, you handicapped horse races, third in world blackjack yeah, championships? Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, yeah I was. I, I was. Uh, I mean, I was very good. I, I, what I'm very good at is knowing what I'm dumb at. And when I was a kid, I started hanging around a lot of people that were. I mean, a kid, 15, 16 years old. I would go to this one bar and they would let me in there. I was a, I don't know how the hell they let me in this place, but I had a lot of mafia characters in that I liked and we talked and, 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 and they said, come on, Chip, you want to go out to the racetrack with us, you know? And I said, all right. And I went to, and I was always a good mathematician in school and figured, I figured I could figure, figure this stuff out pretty good. And whatever I was doing wasn't, I wasn't, it wasn't working. So I thought the game was either fixed or there was something I didn't know about this game that I should know, so I made a study of it. And I studied, I, I found a guy that I was told was a winner, and he was an acting teacher, and he did all his classes in the morning so he could go to the racetrack in the afternoon. And I got a hold of him, and I said, Josh, I said, uh, his name was Josh Shelley, and his, actually his son is a DJ in New Jersey and a wonderful guy, a singer-songwriter. And I said, Josh, you mind if... Uh, if, if I've heard a lot about you. You mind if I just come out to the track with you and be your gopher? I won't say a word. He said, if you tell me what you say, you won't say a word. You can say, yeah, you can come and get me, get me coffee. And I went out there and I sat next to him, got him coffee, and he started talking to me and started telling me this, that, and the other thing. And after a few weeks, I digested what he told me and I started taking it a step further and did some spreadsheets myself and calculations. And all of a sudden, I found something that was just amazing. There was a little trick that I found about about handicapping horses and conditioning of horses, and I, in about a month and a half, I was just I, I, I mean, Josh said I never saw anybody like you, and I did it starting with him and then learning stuff myself because I'm good at knowing what I'm dumb at, and that that helped me proceed to be very good at that. So and and the other stuff, the counting cards was easy for me because I was very good at memory and numbers so i was extremely good i didn't know a better card counter and i was a very good horse race handicapper I, to be honest with you i never knew anybody that had the record that i had i won 53 weeks in a row oh no 53 out of 56 weeks when meyer lansky was my bookie and <laughs> and, and this is a good story because meyer lansky i couldn't understand why his runners this was when i was writing my hits and i used to bet with them every day, one or two horses. And I kept winning and winning and winning and winning. I had not lots of money, I didn't bet lots of money. But it was a significant amount back in those days. You won 500 a week or 700 a week or something like that. And uh, I, uh, and the guys used to come, the runners, George and his friend Vinny, they used to come by Every so often, they'd come by once a week to pay me. But then when it was my birthday, they'd bring me whiskey, nice whiskey. And Christmas, they'd bring me a couple. And finally, I said to them, I said, George, I said, I don't understand one thing. I beat you 
almost every week. And yet you're so polite to me, you're so kind to me, you bring me whiskey for my birthdays and Christmas. I, I don't quite understand it. He said, uh, he said, Chip, you have to understand something. Our boss is a very smart guy. He said, after the third week of you beating our brains out, his instructions were for us was to bet 10 times as much as you bet on the same horses with other bookies <laughs> in at the racetrack. He says, you're one of our best customers. Keep up the good work. <laughs> so I laughed at that. But that's how good I was. And I was banned. I was banned at, I don't say it from any ego. I was just something I was good at. I'm bad at a lot of things, but I was very good at that. And uh, so one, and, and, it, and the casinos in Atlantic City, I would go down, I'd do, write my songs and make a plan to go down maybe every two months for a week or two. And every casino was begging to comp me and bring me down because they knew I played for a lot of money and none of them thought anybody could beat them. So they didn't think the card counter in the world could beat them. They didn't even know about that. And then a couple of years later, after inviting me down, all these casinos asking me to go down and me going down, and I always try to break out even at the casino that was comping me. And I try, try to go to the other six casinos and win. And, and I, sometimes I lost. Most of the time I won. Over the long period of time, I won a lot of money. But after about two years of that, what happened was is that uh, they started to get more word about the card counters. And there was a group, the Houston team, came from uh, MIT. And this was in 1982 oh, or three or something like that. And uh, and they started to ban card counters. And in one week when I was down there, my host casino didn't ban me, but every other casino banned me except for one. And then my host casino banned me, and that was it for me. I was banned. I went down to the one other one and had a, had a banning party because I knew they were going to ban me. And I brought <laughs> all my mafia friends down with me, and we bet until they, until they banned me from the final one. But uh, so then I just switched to horse race handicap. Well, it was kind of a gift to me. I was actually I was working with my friend Al Gorgoni, and I can't tell you say enough about the wonderful things about Al Gorgoni. He was the guitar player that I used. I when I first was doing those records for those demos for Chet Atkins, I asked around of somebody who could play play uh, folk guitar or country guitar, and somebody said, "There's a guy." Al Gorgoni, who's got a nice feel for that. I tra tracked him down. We became great friends. He played guitar and all my things. And then we started to do projects together and produce together and write together sometimes. And we were doing a little grade D movie. It was the cheapest budget movie ever. And, and we were doing the score for it. And Evie Sands was in it and, and a group called the King Bees. And King Bees were, Danny Korchmar was in the band. And Danny kept telling me about this his friend James Taylor, who was coming in from North Carolina the following month, and, and uh, he thought I would like him and, and wanted to see if I could help him. And I said, well, get me a reel-to-reel -reel or something along me. He said, okay. So one day he brought me this reel-to-reel -reel tape, and I put it on, and, and I listened to this stuff. And I fell on the floor. I said, I called up Al. I said, Al, you're not going to believe this kid Danny's been talking about. He said, he's unbelievable, this guy. He said, I think, I think we should stop what we're doing now and don't do anything else but this, you know. <laughs> so uh, 
so we started, James came in and, and um, made, I got a little record company, make a little deal for Al and I, give us our own little label, Rainy Day Records, and a studio we could use when nobody else was using it. And we started fooling around and doing some records, and we did uh, that original Flying Machine record, uh, and Night Owl, and Knocking Around the Zoo, and Brighten Your Night with My Day, and those things. And back in those days, you only released singles until you had two or three hits. That was when you did There was no, nobody that released an album, unless you were a jazz artist or a folk singer. And no pop rock acts ever released albums at the time. This is 1966 or something like that. So uh, I had this idea, because James was playing at a place called The Night Owl in New York, and I had this idea. He was packing him in there, and I was thinking, because James didn't really have a radio voice. You know, that's what they were telling me. And it was kind of true. He didn't sound like anybody else. Back then, singers had different kind of voices than James had. And uh, I said, okay, so we'll get I said, why don't we do this? I said, in my mind, I said, let's release him like a folk singer, like a, like a blues singer. Only he'll be the first rock act or rock and roll act to be released an album without a single. And we'll sell it at the Night Owl, and we'll try to get another club for him in Washington and another club in Boston like that, and have him just keep going round and round and selling these things there and not even worry about a single for a while. And I, th I was so excited, and I went to the company, and the, my main point person, Mickey Eichner, he said, oh, man, that sounds like a, that's a cool idea. I, let me go talk to the bosses about it. And I told James, I said, Mickey said it's a cool idea. He liked James was all excited, and Al was all excited. And then he, Mickey called up, and this was the heartbreak for all of us, because I thought it was going to happen. And he said, uh, no, my boss, Danny, said, we can't change the business ourselves. We've got to play by the singles rule, you know, put singles out. And, and that, was, that was when James uh, was in trouble, and he needed to go into, the, into therapy. And, and uh, he, he went off to do that, and we made a plan to get together I think it was six months from that day at a place full the Guinnesses in New York. That was, at noon, we were going to meet again. And we swore to it and everything. And about two days before, it, I guess he got out early, and he called me up. He was in England. He said, I know I'm supposed to meet you in two days. He said, but I'm in England. I'm with Paul and George. And, and, and they've asked me if I, they want to help me. Can you let me out of the contract ship? Would you let me? So I talked to Al, and make a long story short, we did. It was more complicated than that, because we were supposed to get a royalty, and the people representing uh, the Apple situation, they were not the kindest and most honest people, and Al and I got screwed with that. But uh, we didn't want to, only, the only contract we, we had was with James. We would have to sue James, and we did not want to do that. We liked him, so uh, that was the end of it. It was a great period of time, but... Uh, uh, on to other things. Yeah, well, I, I, there was a couple of, couple of things, and, and, and uh, I, I try to trace this down, and, be, and, and it seemed like my memory doesn't seem right according to what I remember. And I would remember it this way. I would remember the night before I wrote Angel in the Morning, I was watching a war movie about uh, World War II movie and about two a man and a woman who just met each other and they're on opposite sides of the war and they fall in love and they may never see each other again. 
and something like that. Anyway, very passionate, very sad, and they and they and they and they spend that one last night together, you know. And I was carrying that with me a little bit, and I remember thinking, as I went into the city that day, how much I hated the ballads of the day. That I really hated them. Now, as I remember. I was saying to myself, the only ballad that makes any sense at all is Ruby Tuesday. And that was my favorite ballad, you know, by a million miles uh, at, at the time. Now, when I try to check back, it looks like Ruby Tuesday came out after that. So I, I, I'm not, that's what, something I have in my brain is that's what I was thinking, but I don't know. But anyway, it was the passion that I took from that movie. And my passion, I remember thinking, I can't stand the pop music of the day, pop ballads, and I want to write something that has total sweat and passion attached to it. I want to write a ballad that, that will make, make me feel something. And I tried for a long time to come up with, with, with something. I was just, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a stream of consciousness guy. I don't try to think about any words. And, and I had a nice setting, that I, the chords that you hear on Angel of the Morning, but then all of a sudden after a while, maybe after a half hour, all of a sudden the, word, the line with the melody, there'll be no strings to bind your hands, not if my love can't bind your heart, that came out. And I said, what is that? I, I had such a chill. And I was like, oh, oh. And, and I just, wrote it down, picked up the guitar, sang it again, and then something else came out, something else, and I, within 10 minutes, the song was written. And so people said, oh, it's a great idea, Angel of the Mind. That's what led it to, to it. That's what it was. It wasn't, it was the most beautiful love feeling ever. That was, and that started with, there'll be no strings to bind your hands, not if my love can't bind your heart. And then it just went and went went, went, and all of a sudden exploded. And uh, I, I had such a chill when it's all throughout the writing of it, so. we, uh We just started to have a new album out called Block Out the Sirens of This Lonely World. And it's an album that's uh, kind of inspired by my journey, mostly in Norway and Sweden in the last several years. And part of that was the tragedy of which, what happened with the killings in Norway. And I would say I, part of that and part of some personal reasons has been a somber couple of years for me. So block out the sirens of this lonely world is divided into two discs. One, the, the body of it, which is kind of somber. And, the, and then there's a, so I started writing a few kind of happier songs and I put them on a separate disc, the last minute fun stuff. But so we're now, we, we were over in Norway where a guy named Paul Flota, P-A-A-L-F-L-A-A-T-A. -A -A Paul Flota recorded a, a retrospective of my songs, which is produced by my piano player here, Joran Greeny. And Joran went back and forth with me when that album was being done. And, there, and the, the whole start of that was when I sang, I wrote a song for the victims of the tragedy two years ago, and I played it for them in Holden. And it, I wrote it this day of the tragedy, put on a quick show for the victims, got it on Facebook, and the place was flooded with people. 
and we ended all the artists who were supposed to have been on this festival. I kind of organized it, and they all did three songs. And at the end of it, I I did a couple of songs, and then I had just taught it to this singer Paul Floto, who I just met. It was a revered singer over there. He used to play with a group called Midnight Choir, and and people revered that group. And Paul wasn't super pop star or anything, but a very revered artist. And at the last second, I said, Paul, you want to sing this with me? And and I I didn't think it'd be possible that he would, because to tell you the truth, he had a few too many drinks. At, before he got on the stage, and, I, I, and he looked like he wasn't, but then it, somehow we got on the stage together, and he just took his microphone, and went, sat on the bass amp, and I started the song, and all of a sudden, he started to sing with me, and it was like magic. And after that, we did some concerts for the victims, and then when I left, he uh, got some money from the government to do a, a Chip Taylor retrospective album which he put out, it went top 10, it was up for a Grammy uh, a couple of months ago, and I went over there for the Grammys, and then he and I went on tour together, and we played these shows. So now we're back in New York, and now the album is just released here, and so Yoron Greeny, the keyboard player that produced his album and helped me with my album, actually he's the lead producer, he's here with John Platani and I, and we started in New York City and went to Knoxville, and then to, uh, where do we go? Uh, Jackson City, Jackson City, is it where it was? And then, and, uh, then here, Johnson City, and then, and then here. And, uh, and we're heading to uh, Dallas tomorrow, and then we're heading to uh, Houston, uh, no, uh, Austin, and then Houston, and then taking a few, few weeks off and then going to California. So, uh, chugging away. I thank you very much for uh, for meeting with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was great, great. Some of my favorite people are there in Norway and Sweden. Mine too. All right, Otis. Thank you very much for Thanks. chatting with me, man. Thanks, buddy. Right. Great to see you. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Chip for meeting up with me at the Loveless Cafe in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Chip at trainwreckrecords.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever met, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode every Wednesday for free. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.